Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Girl Crush, as recorded by A Little Big Town and co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Laurie McKenna. Long before Little Big Town took Girl Crush to the number one spot on the Billboard Country Chart for a record-breaking 13 consecutive weeks in 2014, Laurie McKenna had established herself as a highly respected singer-songwriter on the Boston-area folk scene. She recorded four independent albums in the late 1990s and early 2000s before country superstar Faith Hill released her versions of four of Laurie's songs in 2005. The pair appeared together on The Oprah Winfrey Show, and McKenna soon signed a deal with Warner Brothers Records. After releasing the top 20 country album Unglamorous in 2007, she returned to her folk roots with the critically acclaimed independent albums Lorraine, Massachusetts, and Numbered Doors. McKenna has expertly balanced both her career as an emotionally evocative musical poet and consistent mainstream success as a commercial songwriter. Her songs have been recorded by Sarah Evans, Tim McGraw, Mandy Moore, Keith Urban, Alison Krauss, Ashley Monroe, Hunter Hayes, Reba McIntyre, Carrie Underwood, and others. Fiercely devoted to her husband and five children, McKenna still lives in her small hometown of Stoughton, Massachusetts. She has famously described herself as just a housewife from Stoughton who likes to write songs. But those songs have earned her multiple Boston Music Awards, a half-dozen Top 40 singles, and Song of the Year honors from the Nashville Songwriters Association International and, most recently, the Country Music Association. You know, we hear so often in the entertainment world about the overnight success. Right. Um, The person who just comes up out of nowhere and all of a sudden is winning all these awards and all this kind of stuff. What people don't know is that nine out of ten times, that overnight success has been laboring and working behind the scenes for a decade or more. Yeah, I think Laurie McKenna is such a good example of someone whose story has maybe been oversimplified to some degree as Mm. some sort of fairy tale. Right. Um, Here's this housewife in Massachusetts who all of a sudden is having her songs recorded by these big hit artists and as if this is the lightning was going to strike and it just happened to hit her, Um, which I think sells short the amount of years that she put into crafting her songs, working on becoming a great songwriter. She, she began writing songs when she was 13 years old. Right. Um, she's been at it for a really long time. Uh, it's just only in recent years that the rest of the public has uh, become aware of her talent. Um, I mean, what, what, what you don't hear about is the, the years of playing open mics and the, you know, the independent albums that were released in the Boston area and the kind of acclaim you get just in your own region. It's not like she just rolled up to Nashville out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's cool that she's stayed in the Boston area. Right. She's made her family her priority. She's made living a life more important than just writing about life, the way, you know, a lot of writers can just give themselves over to the craft. And, and you kind of can run out of ideas and run out of inspiration that way. But it seems like Lori is staying firmly rooted in relationships and in, in the things that kind of made her who she is. Yeah, and, and really just who she is is this very observant, down-to-earth person who's very much uh, in tune with uh, with her own emotions and the emotions that are universal. That's yeah. why her songs resonate in such a way. And, you know, it's to, to have watched the CMA Awards the other night uh, and seen Lori up on stage with her co-writers accepting the award uh, for Girl Crush for Song of the Year. Um, and... To juxtapose this woman I just saw in her glamorous gown on national television right. with the absolutely 
non-pretentious, warm, kind person that, that we spoke with. Yeah. I mean, probably one of the nicest people I've ever encountered, really. Yeah, probably one of the uh, the top four nicest uh, songcraft guests. I don't Indeed. want to rank the other ones. But no, no. But she is she's t- up there. Top three, four. Yeah. And meanwhile, her songs just gut me and make me sad and scare me. You're including the two of us in the top four. Right. So it's the two of us, Lori, <laughs> and then a songcraft guest to be named at a later time. Yeah, exactly. Keep listening and keep following <laughs> us on Twitter, by the way. We've recently uh, started our, um, well, we've gotten active on Twitter, at um, Songcraft Show. So be sure to follow us on Twitter if you have not already. And when we uh, send out info about new shows, new episodes, or just fun tidbits. Uh, we appreciate when you retweet those because it helps people learn about this show and gives folks a chance to hear some of these great interviews that we've been having. Now you've spotlighted it and we have to keep tweeting. Yes, indeed. The tweeting shall continue. Uh, but enough about us. Let's get to one of those fantastic interviews right now. Um, our excellent conversation with Lori McKenna. I got a girl crush. Hate to admit it, but Lori, welcome to Songcraft. Well, thank you for having me. So first off, congratulations on your recent CMA Song of the Year Award for Girl Crush. Thank you so much. We were so excited. I, we, I, I feel like we still can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, Little Big Town took that song to the top of the country chart for an amazing 13 weeks last year. It um, actually made the top 20 on the on the pop charts as well. Um, take us on the journey of how that song went from the original spark of an idea to this major commercial success. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, journey is a good word because it's just been, it's just been one of those things where you, you know, you write a song and you, sometimes when we write songs, we think, you know, we think, oh, this would be good for so-and-so or this would be good if it was produced this way. And, and this was really <laughs> a song that, like, just took on a life of its own. Um, I wrote it with Liz Rose and Hillary Lindsay, mm. and we call ourselves the Love Junkies, um, <laughs> just to be funny, really. We gave ourselves a name. <laughs> Where did that name come from? Hillary remembered that we were writing our first song, the three of us together. Yeah. And we were trying to rhyme with a word that we think may have been country. We were trying to, like, you know, rhymers, where I was trying. And somebody right. said, Love Junkie. <laughs> and... And Liz said, that should be our name, the Love Junkies, you know, because we're always writing songs about love. But, right. um, but the three of us write together about every other month for three days at a time, because I live up in Boston, and I go sure. to Nashville once or twice a month for three days. Yeah. And we we just stay at Liz's house, and we sort of, we write from the minute we wake up in the morning until the minute somebody falls asleep. Nice. And we just, you know, have girl time, and... And we eat food and drink wine sometimes and drink coffee all the time and right. and write songs. And we had written that song, um, it was like the second day of a trip, and we we got up at, Liz and I get up early, and um, Liz and I were sitting in the kitchen, and I said, I wanted to write a song called Girl Crush, and she didn't like the title at first. <laughs> Liz didn't like it, because it was one of those hashtag things, you know, and right. it's the on social media, right. and she's like, oh, I hate, you know, that hashtag stuff, and she sort of shut me down, and, <laughs> and so we had breakfast and talked for a minute, and then Hillary came down, and 
and I sort of threw the, you know, threw it out like I hadn't said it before to Lynn. <laughs> Thank <laughs> right. God. Try again. You know how you do that? Like yeah. if someone, you know, you just ask the next person. Right. But, um, your mom but, tells you no, you ask your dad kind of thing. Ex- <laughs> exactly. So I did the mom-dad thing, and um, and thankfully I did because Hillary, who I consider to be a genius, um, she she sang the first four lines of that song. Wow. Exactly the way they are. Wow. And as soon as she did, of course, Liz was like, oh, I get it. I'm on board. Let's <laughs> write this. And we wrote it er, like in, an, in about an hour and a half or two hours. And then at 11 that morning, um, Karen and Kimberly from Little Big Town came over to write with us. And we wrote three other songs that day. Wow. So it was day. just one of those things where they came over. Where they were, We were catching up. They said, what have you guys been writing? We played them the song. They said they loved it. And then we just moved on, you know, and so yeah. it wasn't really until they recorded it and we heard some voice, you know, some whispers from like some of the players or people that had been in the studio with, with Little Big Town um, saying, oh, the song sounds really good. Wait till you hear it. It sounds yeah. great. So we heard these little, you know, and then we'd see the band and they'd say, wait till you hear the songs, you know. Right. And, um, and then we started getting calls from songwriters when the record came out our songwriter friends called us like Shane McAnally was called me one day and he was like, man, I wish I thought of this. And so it, <laughs> it really like from the very beginning just took on a, a little life of its own. And, yeah. and then just all the support, the community. Sure. You, you talk about, you know, kind of finally hearing the version and, and hearing reports from the studio, you know, not only is girl crush a great song, but it's really a great record. Um, the production is remarkably sparse. It's really tasteful. It's really just the vocals and the one guitar kind of all the way through the first chorus was that like kind of the way you guys had done the demo? I mean, how how involved were you guys as writers in setting the tone for how that recording was going to be done? Yeah, we weren't involved in all, at all. Literally, uh, we we sang it on. Hillary played it um, on this old Gibson at Liz's house that morning hmm. and sang it into an iPhone. And you know, Liz and and, and I always try to harmonize a tiny bit in the back. But we usually, if Hillary Lindsay's singing, you you know, you stay out of the way because she's one of the best singers around. And, <laughs> Um, and the, it's like a work tape that we did at like, I don't, I want to say like 1030 in the morning, you know what I mean? Wow. And like right after we wrote it. And the thing about work tapes, you know, sometimes you, you get them, you know, right away. And sometimes you have to learn the song or get to know the song yourself a little yeah. bit. And she, um, she just sang it, you know, perfectly sort of into one of our phones and, and that was it. And that's the thing about the band, you know, Little Big Town and Jay Joyce, they, I feel like they work together so Perfectly, like I just right. always love the records they make, and we've had a, we've been lucky enough to have a bunch, you know, a few songs, you know, sober and and um, save your sin, where love junkie songs and yeah. tumble and fall we wrote with Karen and Kimberly and um, that day actually and um, wow. and and I had a song called Your Side of the Bed that I wrote with them and they just make great records. That's all yeah. to it, and you know, Jay Hillary calls Jay Joyce, you know the. The, the mad scientist, you know, but it's it's perfectly mad if that's what it is right. because it's just he he's a genius in his own you know what what he does and um and they just work so well together and yeah. I think that that's what really what brought the song to the next level. You know, one of the things I noticed when uh, when they were accepting the award, I believe it was Karen Fairchild. She was talking about the the kind of bravery of radio to play that song. It's funny when the when the quote unquote you know controversy of that song came out, which. Lasted about a day, really. I think <laughs> the most, the, the 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 craziest thing about it is everybody that had something to talk about revolving around that, they sort of picked what they wanted to talk about. The songwriters talked about 
are we listening to words? Are we listening to what the, you know, do we have to get the whole song in the first four lines, or can mm. we listen to the song evolve and the story right. evolve and, and then find out what the song's about? It, you know, um, those story songs, sometimes we don't know until a little, you know, do we have the attention span to listen right. to to the songs longer than we give them a chance? And, um, and, and that was really, I think, the songwriters, that's what we all, all wanted to talk about, yeah, were, were course, lyrics yeah. and, and do we give the stories a chance? You know, we have three and a half minutes to, to tell you a story, and right. it's hard to sort of, you know, to sort of get it all in in the, in, in the chorus sometimes, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, let, let's go back to the start of your story. Um, you grew up in Stoughton, Massachusetts, about 20 miles outside of Boston, where you still live. So what are your earliest musical memories as a kid? So I'm the youngest of um, of six, and I have four brothers and a and a sister. And um, I grew up. My my musical early early musical memories remem- memories <laughs> are of my brothers playing piano, and we have a sort of very musical family. And there was always somebody playing piano, and one of my brothers, my brother Richie, plays guitar. And um, I sort of grew up listening to what they listened to. I always like right. sit around and say, you know, in my house it was like Jesus and James Taylor. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so it really was just James Taylor, Carly Simon, mm. Carol King, Neil Young, Jackson Brown. Yeah. That's the stuff that I started with. So yeah. I think that, you know, that base of, of you know, um, of knowing who wrote the song or mm-hmm. the artist writing the song or the singer writing the song or if they didn't, you know, sort of, just being interested in who wrote the song was mm. it just I thought everybody knew that stuff you know what I mean <laughs> right. it wasn't right. really until high school I found out that other people weren't songwriters <laughs> not everybody's reading the liner notes <laughs> right. well I understand that that your mother passed away when when you were about seven years old um and do you feel like dealing with that loss and having to confront these sort of complex emotions that are coming along at an earlier age for you than they probably came along for a lot of people. Um, do you think that in any way sort of helped shape your artistic spirit in terms of being able to learn at an early age how to express yourself emotionally? Yeah, I think, you know, th- that for me, um, that w- it, was just, it was just sort of second nature to, yeah. to write things down, like write emotions down. And I, the other thing is I'm not... As you can probably already tell, I'm not the greatest in the moment of articulating myself. <laughs> I think songwriting became just like this way, like I'm not going to be able to express the way I feel at this moment, but if you give me like a day and a half, I can probably write it down <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and express it this way. And um, it was just really, it's funny because I did have a really great childhood. Like my family's, you know, I have, I, I came from a great family and we're super close. And, right. and I remember talking to my friend, Mary Gaucher, who's a masterful songwriter, mm, brilliant sure. singer songwriter. I remember talking to her one day about songwriters and how, you know, so many of them had such hard childhoods and, and how hard it was for most writers. You know, she was just describing that. I said, my childhood was really good. And, mm. and I'll never forget it. She said, baby, your mama died, <laughs> and, you know, right. I, and it was, it really didn't dawn on me until, until she said that. And I said, I, I guess it was like just a way for me to channel, yeah. you know, all those things. And, and the strangest thing, you know, so I've always been connected to it somehow, yeah. like since she sort of woke me up and I started paying attention and, 
the CMAs the other night was November 4th, and it was my my mother's 80th birthday. That oh, wow. Day. So my sister, I had my mother's wedding ring on my right hand, and my oh, sister cool. was kept reminding me that, you know, my mother's spirit was sort yeah. of watching over me. So Looking down. that was nice. Yeah. And I've heard you say that your best friends to this day are the girls that you met in seventh grade band. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about what instrument you played and kind of what role being in band and having music as part of your school education played in your development. Um, yeah, you know, I played the clarinet, and I didn't, I wasn't very good at it. I think I could get through. Uh, so that Dixieland but, album is not coming anytime soon? No, I mean, it just wasn't happening. You know, the, I had braces, too, which is tough. Yeah, you know, and, I mean, you certainly can't play trumpet with braces. But <laughs> I, but those girls that I met in seventh grade, um, Janice and Michelle, and I mean, all those girls are still my girlfriends at home, for sure, and my... My best friend Michelle that I grew up with, she's I could walk to her house right now. You wow. know what I mean? We I, I I do I am one of those people that live in the town that I grew up in. So yeah. um but I think that for me I think I would have figured it out eventually because of my family just being so musical, but I feel like um, you know, looking back, I feel like, you know, I started guitar lessons when I was thirteen and I, I don't know really what I would have done when I wonder Okay, if I didn't have music, if I wasn't in my bedroom like taping songs off the radio and trying to learn <laughs> right. them on, you know, on my guitar, what would I? How would I have expressed myself? Like, yeah. how would I have, you know, gotten through this? Such a such a tough time right. in life, I think, for most of us. Those mm-hmm. those you know, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years, and um, and uh, I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't had that because it's really the only way I'm good at being creative (laughs) yeah yeah and I understand that you dropped out of community college when you were 19 years old to marry your husband Gene and your first child was born soon thereafter and and you've really uh, emphasized that your role as a a wife and and a mother is kind of your your most important thing that's kind of what you've stated as your your primary identity um before that, however, when you when you were in in community college, did you have a particular career trajectory in mind, and and if so, did did it involve music in some way? You know, it didn't involve music, and it's um, I think at the time I was going for just a business degree, and hmm. I my brother Donald, who sort of raised me after my mom died, he had a company that he started. Um, and he's a chemist and he had an adhesive company that he, he started and I worked for him part time and it really, I didn't do anything sort of with music other than play and write for myself until I had the first of our five kids. I had three of the five and, um, I had the, you know, I was 25 when I had, um, my son Chris, who was our third Uh and I think you know, I really think, because I, I did have confidence issues, and I, I still, I think we, you know, I still do sometimes, but at that time, I certainly had confidence issues and wasn't going to sing or, or play in front of anybody, and um, right. and I really think if I didn't have those kids so young, I wouldn't have maybe ever done it. I, I, I somehow found the nerve to start doing open mics hmm. um, when I was around 27 or 28, because I figured... I think I had seen, you know, some people when I was younger that music didn't turn out the way that they expected it to in their lives, and they seemed a little broken about it, and I (laughs) knew I didn't want to go in that direction. But when I had the kids, I knew that I had this 
purpose hmm. and that that was what my purpose was. And so if music was not my purpose, if it didn't have anything to do with part of my purpose, I, it, I was cool. I would be cool with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'd just stay in my kitchen and I couldn't tell if I could sing. I literally could not tell if huh. I, if anybody would like my voice because <laughs> I have such a different voice than anybody else in my family. Like hmm. my voice just sounds, my, my siblings are all good singers and, and I have this unique, um, to be careful, unique voice, <laughs> and um, and and I just didn't know. I didn't know, you know, what what to do with it, to be honest. Yeah. And and it really wasn't until I had the kids, and I I thought, you know, well, here's my job, and I can do, I can try this and see how right. it it goes, and and not expect anything out of it. And I I really remind myself of that a lot because it, I think that music's one of those things where you do have to stick your neck out a little bit and yeah, it, but yeah. it reward it the the reward is so great like anything that i've put into music it's given me back you know so many times over and um and you know thank god for that i, I don't really know what what else i would have found other than motherhood that you know that i could you know that i could do and say oh i'm kind of good at this i can yeah. maybe that's why i have five children <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> well, those those open mics uh, must have gone pretty well, and people did respond to your voice because then you went ahead and made your first album, uh, Paper Wings and a Halo, which you released in 1998. And uh, the Boston area folk station, WUMB, named you Best New Artist. Then you won your first Boston Music Award as a result of that album. And that was a fairly stripped-down record, which let your songs really shine through. And I want to ask you about one song, Ruby Shoes, from that album. She was only six years old, but she did. Um, tell us the story behind that one. So Ruby Shoes was, I, I swear to God, it was written because my oldest son, Brian, was in second grade. He's 26 now. <laughs> and he was in second grade, and he, all the second graders have to go, have to do a biography report. And the book he chose to do his report on was the story of Ruby Bridges. And, um, hmm. and I think... We knew. I think we had that book because because we had seen her maybe on Oprah or something like. But we had the book in the house, and I could never read the book without crying. Like, mm. like a few books, like Polar Express, can't read without crying. <laughs> and she had been and, one of the one of the kids who had kind of helped integrate the the school system in the South, right? Yes, and yeah. so well, Ruby went to to first grade. You know, when the schools were desegregate desegregated, and um. She ended up sort of going to school by herself, and mm. the National Guard had to come and protect her to walk at school each day. And right. so he did his his biography report on on Ruby, and um and I wrote the song so he could sing it to class <laughs> as his extra credit because he was wow. always playing guitar and singing. Yeah. And so when the when the time came for his presentation, I had recorded it at a open mic. I sang it at an open mic and someone recorded because I didn't have a way of recording anything. Right. And uh, I, I he brought the tape into school and he sang. He like he played it in the background and he sang the song and he got an A by the way. <laughs> nice. Um, on his report. But anyway, <laughs> a year or so later, Ruby Bridges had heard the song because I put it on that record and. Yeah. And she came, and she came to see my kids, and came and, and visited us. And, uh, oh wow, that is so cool! Came and she visited the school and the and the kids, and it was it was a crazy, wow. um, it was crazy thing <laughs> wow. that happened. Yeah, well, after your debut album, you put out a couple of more 
independent records, Pieces of Me and The Kitchen Tapes, before releasing Bitter Town, which is one of your best-known albums. And, you know, like a Patty Griffin or a Bruce Springsteen, you have this remarkable skill for giving voice to kind of this sense of, of small-town confinement or, or restlessness. And that unique ability to capture this feeling of aching or longing in the in the mundane details of everyday life, to me is just perfectly illustrated in a song like Stealing Kisses. Stealing kisses from a boy now I'm begging affection from a man in my house dress Don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? Standing in your kitchen When I hear that song, I almost feel like I'm reading someone's journal. Like, I'm not supposed to be hearing this you know it's 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 too it's like almost too intimate it's i'm almost uncomfortable as a listener like uh, i'm eavesdropping um but to me that is just such a amazing song like every time i hear it i kind of get chills um tell us about about stealing kisses and and writing that when i started writing songs i was say 13 as soon as i could play a couple chords on the guitar i started writing songs and and then i didn't sing any of them ever to anybody until i was 28 so that time between, you know, 13 and 28, and all the things, you know, that happened to all of us, just like, say, in those years of our lives. Um, I I think I didn't learn how to edit myself in the way that most people do, because I think, I'm going to play this for somebody tomorrow or <laughs> next year. Right. And so I wrote so many songs just for myself, um, that that's just been a big part of how I write. And it's yeah. sort of... Um, selfish songwriting in a way or you know it's sort of the opposite of, of trying to be commercial I guess if there is yeah. an opposite of that and um, <laughs> and I think that that song in particular um, it was just one of those things where the way I learned how to express myself even if I wasn't going to tell anybody the way I learned to express myself was in a song rather than a journal I was never mm. patient enough to, to keep journals or I always would lose them or something but um, but that was really one of those songs, and it was, um, you know, I got in trouble a little bit over, over it because it's like the verses in, I don't know, third person, the chorus is in first, or what, vice versa, I'm not sure, but you know what I mean? It's like, well, I, you know, grammatically, I'm never going to be probably correct in these things, but, but emotionally, that was just the way it it came out, you know, I think just from carrying around, sort of missing somebody since my mom passed away, since being little, I've always sort of like... Though I'm a very happy person, I sort of, you know, that's where it all sort of stems from sure. is yeah. is that place, and that that's why I'm drawn to sad songs, and I sort of yeah. end up writing them yeah, <laughs> as yeah. well. Well, stealing kisses was a turning point for you because um, Faith Hill ultimately released that song as a single in 2006 and made it a top 40 country hit. Uh, share with us a bit about how Faith ended up becoming aware of your songs because that's kind of a, a big jump there from open mics, now I'm doing kind of my own records and getting local awards, and then all of a sudden I'm on the national country charts with a Faith Hill single. Yeah, and it's funny because at the time I didn't really know how publishing deals worked or how people got their songs to artists, and I remember you know, talking to people about it and trying to figure out, like, how do how do you get your song to, you know, a, a big artist? Yeah. And, and I didn't know, I, didn't, I had no idea, but um, what happened was Mary Gaucher. Um, Mary Gaucher and I, when, when I started doing open mics, I would show up at the 
at the open mic, and Mary would be like the feature of the night. So she was a she was a few steps ahead of me right. in her career, and um and we just clicked because at the time Mary was maybe thirty or I don't know how old she was, but she was like thirty and I was like twenty eight. You know mm. what I mean? So we were always older people at the open mics. Everyone else was like eighteen, nineteen, and then <laughs> right. Mary and I, and um. And we sort of always stuck out, the two of us, and uh, and so we ended up sort of bonding over that and becoming friends, and yeah. Mary moved from Boston to Nashville, and she gave my record, Bittertown, to Melanie Howard, who um, is Harlan Howard's widow and mm. has a publishing company. Yeah. And, and Melanie called me and said, can I pitch your songs around Nashville? And I had never met Melanie, and I didn't know if she was crazy or not, and I didn't know <laughs> if Mary was crazy or not. But I, Well, I knew Mary wasn't crazy, so I thought, well, she's <laughs> right. going to steer me in the wrong direction. But I didn't know who Melanie was at all. Yeah, sure. And I was like, sure, you can pitch my songs. You know, that would be great. And she called me back. Um, she called me in May the first time, and then she called me back in August. And she said, Faytail wants to hear everything you've written. Wow, and geez. by November of that year, she had recorded the songs. And still, I didn't know. You know, that that Fireflies record came out the following August. So that whole time in between, I didn't know, you know, sort of how it works still. And, yeah. and now that I understand that, you know, every day there's people, the songwriters coming to Nashville or moving to Nashville or taking planes to Nashville to pitch their songs <laughs> and get publishers to listen and yeah. how hard that is and then how hard it is to get the publisher to get it to the artist and how hard it is for the artist to, you know what I mean, to, yeah. to be able to listen and then fall in love with the song. And, right. and now that I know the process, it really is like, like I sort of won the lottery. Yeah. You know, oh, it's yeah. like I didn't even play. I wouldn't even <laughs> play the numbers somehow. And, yeah, yeah. And I won the lottery. So when people ask me like, oh, how did you start? It's like, I don't, it was like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it's the well, craziest and, story and, ever. And, you know, Faith Hill recorded five of your songs for that Fireflies album. One of them wound up not being released and one appeared on the iTunes exclusive version, but three of them made the, the main record, uh, Stealing Kisses, which we just talked about, If You Ask, and of course the, the title track, Fireflies. Um, I want to hear a little bit of your version of Fireflies, followed by Faith's recording of the song. That is such an evocative lyric, uh, Fireflies. What what can you tell us about writing that? That one really was, uh, <laughs> I hate to bring everything back to my mother, but it is hmm. it is about my mother. Yeah. Um, sort of the whole, you know, I was taught to dream part. And I remember my brother David calling me one time, and he's like, hey, how come you were taught to dream? I don't remember being taught to dream. <laughs> <laughs> you know, kidding around with me. But um, I, I just remember I... I I think I was, you know, I don't know, maybe 29 or so when I wrote that song, but I remember sort of being 
at this tiny little bit of a crossroads between like sort of like hanging on to believing in things that kids believe in as far as like magic and you know like yeah. dreams can come true and all those things um versus you know grown up land where you just mm. be practical and and steadfast and things that are concrete and that you know can happen for you um and it was sort of it, it even though I was older you know and I had the kids and everything I sort of like was trying to hang on to you know believing in you know if you believe in these crazy things happening they can happen and that's why right. it's so strange that it that they really did <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the whole you know faith hill thing happened well there's a funny story that went with fireflies with my husband who still doesn't have a boat always wanted a boat always wanted <laughs> a boat he's like yeah. a boat guy and he doesn't have a boat and i right after that faith fireflies record came out he was I, I like walked into the room one night and he was reading a one ad like a boat magazine of like used boats you know yeah and I said, oh, what are you doing? And he said, oh, nothing. I'm just looking at these boats. And I'm like, and I, you know, know knowing that he knows he can never buy one. And, yeah. uh, and I said to him, <laughs> if I haven't, have I proved one thing to you? Are there, like, haven't I proved that dreams can come true? Like crazy dreams can come true. And he looked at me and he said, You've proved that your dreams can come true. <laughs> so in turn, I said, well, you should be nicer to me, and maybe I'd start dreaming about a boat. <laughs> awesome. Well, you were already a respected artist before the Faith Hill notoriety came about, but you had mostly performed regionally up to that point. But then Faith took you on the Oprah Winfrey show. Uh, and that changed things, and then you went on tour, opening for her and her husband, Tim McGraw. How did the hometown folks react to these big developments in your life and career? Well, I think that, um, you know, first uh, with Faith Hill, you know, recording the songs, that was sort of like, you know, um, kind of a big deal around here. And I, I certainly got a lot of people congratulating me on, mm. on all that. And then, you know, when you put when you throw Oprah in the game, sure. you know, <laughs> it's just like a whole other level. And, um, and that was a big thing. You know, it was... Um, it was this kind of crazy time. It all sort of happened at once, and um, and it was it was busy around here, and there were you know cameras here, and there were you know all all these things going on. And um, when we went on tour, I got to take three of my kids with me, oh, and cool. and that was great. And yeah. and you know I had never been touring nationally before, and I certainly hadn't been on a tour bus before, and. Um, and it was just, it was just a thrill. Like it was just like this thrilling time for us, for I think all of us around here. And yeah, yeah. at the time people kept asking me like, how has your life changed? How has your life changed? And I couldn't really come up for air to tell you how my life had changed. Hmm. Um, and it really wasn't until years, you know, later that, that I thought, well, it, everything's changed because I have, you know, I have this career now. Hmm. I kind of have two careers, you know, but but I have this career now that I never would have dreamed that that I could have because right. um, I kind of I've kind of just been blessed to have the best of of both worlds and 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 really the hardest thing is is, is balancing. Right. But um, but everything was kind of a little bit like a dream then and um, and it kind of still is. You know, I kind <laughs> of have to. I still kind of wake up in the morning and think like. Oh my God! I still get to be a songwriter today. Right. Like, what? The hell? Right, <laughs> what right. is this? Like, when am I going to get fired? This Nobody's found fun, me out yet. <laughs> and and once the the Faith Hill thing happened, I mean, the Nashville music community got hip to your songs, and you started having quite a few of them covered by country artists. You know, Sarah Evans 
for example, recorded Bible song on her 2005 album, Real Fine Place. And that's a song that that first appeared in a stripped-down form on your Kitchen Tapes album and then appeared in kind of a more produced version on on Bittertown where you performed it with Buddy Miller and then, of course, got even more produced when when Sarah Evans cut it. Um, What are your thoughts on the ways in which production style can alter the way that listeners experience a song? Well, I think it's funny. I always say, you know this, I still say this all the time. As far as writing... Um, a song, I have a lot of friends that when, during the writing process, they can sort of start to hear production ideas. Mm, Yeah. And I remember years ago, you know, sort of complaining to a friend about it and saying, I never really hear production ideas when I write. It's so weird. And sometimes I don't even, I don't even hear them like after the song's (laughs) written or I don't even hear them when I'm performing the song. Yeah. And I remember them saying, oh, don't worry, it'll all come to you. Well, well, a million years later, they still have not come to me, and I still, <laughs> I still just ever hear a song like as with a vocal and a guitar, yeah. and I, I, I so respect production and I producers and people that hear all those things and songwriters that have all those ideas, but I'm, I just let it go because I'm just not one of those people, and yeah, um, right. and I don't worry about it anymore. I used to sort of worry about it, like when is it going <laughs> to click, and it never did. Right. And, Right. Um, so I, you won't catch me ever producing my own record. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nashville's very much a co-writing town, and you found a lot of success as a co-writer, but you really started out kind of writing your songs by yourself. I'd like to hear about that very first Nashville co-writing session and what that experience was like for you coming in as, as someone who'd written solo up to that point. Yeah, I had never written a, a, co-written a song until I had a publishing deal. and oh. You know, this is terrible. I'm not exactly sure, but I want to say that Mark D. Sanders was the first hmm. co-writer I had. Yeah. Um, Who wrote, well, uh, wrote, I Hope You Dance. I Hope You Dance. And, yeah. and um, a bunch of other great songs. And he, Mark D. is just, he's a great friend. He's, is, I'm very thankful to call him a friend of mine. And he, uh, I want to say he was one of the first people that that wasted their day trying to co-write a song <laughs> with Barney McCann. <laughs> but we did write Drinking yeah. Problems together, which was on... Unglamorous, but yeah. yeah. When I think back now, of like when I think of the people that probably that probably thought, "Oh my God, I have this girl that does not has never co-written a song, <laughs> and now she's in, she's in my calendar today." Like I hope she doesn't show up, you know. Um, and them all putting up with me. But I this is one thing about co-writing is I've learned about myself over the years is much like do I hear production? No, I don't hear production. Another deficiency that I thought I had all these years was I'm not sort of a musician in the way that I can help someone like if you start playing one of your songs I'm not going to jump up on stage and play with you I'm sort of the whole bandmate thing I I'm sort of like still I have a band but I'm still sort of a solo artist up there and hoping the band follows me I'm sort of like very (laughs) self-centered in that way and I've, I've not um I'm not a team player in the way that I can help others sort of express their songs once yeah. they're written. I'm not great at harmony. I have to sort of really work on harmony. 
and I'm not a good enough guitar player to jump up and play a song with a friend on stage. Yeah. And um and when I learned how to co-write, I thought, well, this is how mm. this is where it clicks for me is yeah. I love sitting in a room with somebody and helping them try to write the best song that they can write that day. Yeah. I love you know, I like I do write self you know, self centered songs for sure <laughs> and um but it, in a co-write especially if it's two people or three people you know like if there's three of you or 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 even two but sort of you have to figure out what your role is that day sure. yeah. and some days you're the artist and some days you're the therapist and some days right. you're the best friend and some <laughs> right. days you're the wingman and some days you're the you know yeah, yeah. anything that you have to be and i love that part of co-writing right. so i loved it right away well and that that unglamorous album that you mentioned uh came out in 2007 on warner brothers records which was your kind of your major label debut tim mcgraw um was a co-producer of that um that was your first album as we've mentioned that featured any uh co-written songs and i would think an album that kind of sounds that uh, commercial on paper, you know, the the major label, the the star artist helping produce, um, collaborating with some of the biggest writers in town, you know, that might to some people sound like, you know, oh, is she is she selling out? Is she trying to be something, you know, a different type of artist than she has been? But you know, not at all. That is not the Laurie McKenna Bro Country album. I mean, that is the the emotional <laughs> gut punches are still like fully intact with that record and, and songs like you know leaving this life just is is such like a, a poignant song um and there's obviously a lot of a lot of autobiography in that particular song but in a larger sense how often are your songs just straight up reflections of your own experiences versus the idea of kind of taking emotional content from your own life and creating characters or, or creating scenarios that kind of explore larger themes yeah i think that at that point i was walking in rooms and the writer, whoever I was writing with that day, would would think, oh, she's gonna she's gonna make a record on Warner Brothers. We're writing for her record. So that's yeah. sort of the, the space I was in at that mm. time. And I think that you know that I knew I wasn't gonna I knew I wasn't gonna be commercial. And it's funny. It's it's almost I've never sort of said this out loud, but it's it's truthful in the way that I sort of remember having conversations with people that were helping me make that record and they, you know, they were being very supportive and I thought, oh, this is going to be such a big record. It's going to sell so many copies. And I remember in my brain thinking, it's probably not going to sell so many copies <laughs> as everybody would just say what. I mean, because I knew, I just knew that I wasn't capable of switching over to where the commercial, you know, where mm. the, where that line was going to be. And, yeah. um, and 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 if I did, I wasn't going to be able to sing it the right way. You right. know what I mean? Like even if I could get through the day writing, um, just a straight up, 
you know, country hit. I don't know if I'm the person to, to sing it, you know? And, um, and I do like every now and then just putting, you know, out something that's, you know, that does sound more commercial or more pop or whatever, you know, like as a writer, you want to be able to write all those things. You want to, you you can't stay in one little space because you won't, you'll forget how to even write in that little space if you don't, if you always stay there. So I think, yeah. Well, I think a great yeah, example of that is your 2011 album, uh, Lorraine, because about half of those songs are, are songs that were co-writes, uh, including uh, mm-hmm. one of my favorites, Rocket Science, which was written with Barry Dean and, and Tom Douglas, who, of course, was our last guest here on Songcraft. Um, another one of the songs that you wrote solo on that record that I really love a lot is is By This Town. We keep the church of Christ and the bowling alley open the bud like signs crack a while the glowing by this town um, what's the story behind that song so that that song has a, a little bit of a unique story in the way that um, I literally the first verse of that song I wrote in my minivan after dropping off a couple of the kids at the high school and there was a newly installed light in front of the town hall at the time in my in my in the center of town and i i stopped at that light and i i actually timed it one day it's like a four minute light it's really long light like (laughs) if you get stuck there you'd it's like three and a half minutes it's like as long as a song honestly and um and i was thinking about the town and how it's changed and I was thinking about how, you know, some of the best people in the, in the world that I know live there and how I drive to the center of town sometimes eight times a day because the kids have sports and whatever, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And um, and that the first verse just, you know, I like landed in my head and I sang it in my iPhone so I would remember and I brought the little kids home and gave them breakfast and then dropped them off at school and then I came home and, and I wrote the song and like, I don't know, like 45 minutes. It was just really fast because yeah. of that, you know, little gift that landed on the hood of my minivan. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, another great song on the on the Lorraine album is The Luxury of Knowing, which had previously been recorded by Keith Urban. And, and similarly, on your 2013 album, Massachusetts, you included your own version of My Love Follows You Where You Go, which was written with Barry Dean and Liz Rose. And that one had previously appeared on Alison Krauss's Grammy-winning Paper Airplane album. Future like a sort of made me wonder you know it's uh, you, you don't often hear of a writer writing a song that that another artist records and then then they do it on their own record um and, and i'm curious when you hear other artists cover your songs um does that ever cause you to evaluate those songs from a different perspective and i guess what i'm really asking is when you hear someone else sing something that you wrote does that give you a little bit of objective distance that it kind of allows you the freedom to to listen as a as a third party would and say, "Dang, that is a good song," and I'm I'm going to put that on my record. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think that 
that that is the you know that it, that we sort of see them in different ways when anybody sings them and and like girl crush for certain and like we talked about the production and just the way Karen sings it um i think that we all sort of you know we've heard Karen sing that song um or the band sing that song so many times now and we and all three of us Liz and Hillary and i we all sort of realized you know, we did a good. We were very lucky because it was so fast. But we did it like, look at how how great she sings that song, mm-hmm. and she sort of brought like she almost should be a co-writer on it because she she did yeah. sort of bring it to a, a different level, like we we keep talking about. But it's funny the 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 interpretation I think of any song like "Luxury of Knowing," um, the way Keith Urban does it is just it. You know, excuse my language, it's just so damn good. I could yeah. sort of never do it like, you know, sing it the way he sang it. Right, but right. I sort of, you know, I've always sort of not worried about my, if I know how to sing a song, I'm going to sing it because I'm not going to sort of worry that I can't sing as well as somebody else. Other, mm. If I didn't, I would have never done My Love Follows You Where You Go because who <laughs> would ever sing a song after Alison Krauss the <laughs> voice in the whole world? And I remember saying that, if, you know, that proves I'm either brave or stupid to sing a song, <laughs> you know, after Alison Krauss. <laughs> but, but like I said earlier, I think that's the thing about songs is everybody's supposed to sing them. If they like them, they're supposed to sing them. It doesn't matter, you know, how they sing or who they're singing them for. If yeah. they like the song, they're supposed to sing it. Yeah. Well, you know, recording Laurie McKenna songs has been a, a popular thing to do in Nashville for about the last 10 years. Um, but it's really in the last two or three years that you've been having more hit singles as opposed to album cuts. And that really started when Hunter Hayes went to number two on the Billboard country charts and, and hit the pop top 20 as well with I Want Crazy, which you wrote with Hunter and, and Troy Virgis. Um, that song earned you a BMI Performance Award and, and got Hunter nominated for a Best Country Solo Performance Grammy. Um, and that was also the same year that you had a couple of songs that both ended up as top 40 singles for Little Big Town, which were Sober and, and Your Side of the Bed. Um, so here you are, you're having this this major Nashville success, um, but unlike a lot of writers in Nashville, you still live in Massachusetts. So obviously this involves a little commuting <laughs> for you. Um, <laughs> tell us about just a typical co-writing trip that you might take to Nashville. Yeah, so I get I get to Nashville once a month for sure, and then sometimes it ends up being twice a month. Um, and what I normally do is, uh, well, first of all, I'm in love with Southwest Airlines because <laughs> I didn't get <laughs> right. paid for that, I promise. <laughs> but, um, but no, I, I usually, like, I'll leave on a Monday morning, and I'll um, do meetings um, and write songs and uh, for three days, and then I'll leave, like, Wednesday afternoon. And if there's a direct flight, I can be home, you know, by oh, 10 o'clock Wednesday yeah. night. So it's great. I, there's been some direct flights, and I can sort of get, you know, so much done. And my publishers are always like, we don't want to work you too hard, so tell us, you know, what to put on your account. And I'm always like, just put anything you can fit in there. Because right. I always say the worst thing in the world is like a bored mother of five. Like, don't leave <laughs> me bored somewhere. <laughs> I need to be busy. That's, because, that's why you're doing a podcast um, interview on a Monday morning. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Because otherwise, like, what would happen? I don't even know what I would do. But that's a good thing about writing solo is sometimes, you know, if you do end up getting canceled on or something, I can always just sit in an office and and, and write by myself. But, yeah, sure. but but I've been lucky. You know, I get to write with the, with the best writers in that town, and I get to, 
be friends with the best people in that town. And um, I've been so blessed by Nashville, and I, I do miss it. If I'm not there once a month, I sort of just get a little cranky, and I miss seeing everybody, and I miss being, you know, like like I said, part of that community. Yeah, that yeah. music is such a community thing, and, and I've really found my community in those writers there. And um, and I, I miss all that if I'm not around it a lot. But, but I don't think it would be necessarily healthy for me to live in that mm. environment because mm. then I would want to write all the time and I'm not an yeah. everyday writer I can't write every day I, I have friends that can and I'm always amazed by them that they that their brains don't explode but um, <laughs> I just can't write every day I need like I need to sit on things I'm, I'm slower than a lot of writers and I need to like sit on things for for days at a time sometimes and yeah um, I just keep ideas in the back of my head and sure. um, and I think it's good for me to to come, you know, as often as I do, right. and and then come home and sort of, you know, <laughs> let it, you know, decharge right, or yeah. recharge. Re- replenish the well, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, last year you had a top ten single when Ray Lynn, who was a contestant on The Voice, recorded God Made Girls. Uh, then, of course, Little Big Town had their huge success with Girl Crush, and that success just keeps on coming. You co-wrote Reba McIntyre's most recent single. You co-wrote... Uh, like I'll Never Love You Again on Carrie Underwood's most recent album, which which just came out in late October. Um, so your your youngest child is now a preteen, and the three oldest are in their 20s and grown. Um, you're having all the success. There, there are these opportunities to go to Nashville, perhaps maybe more opportunities on the horizon. And, and I'm curious, as your, as your day-to-day responsibilities with your kids kind of demands less and less of your time as they grow up, um, how do you imagine that is going to impact your songwriting career? I don't know if it will at this point. You know, the, our youngest is 11, so the way we think about it is sort of like we have, you know, um, we have until he gets out of high school, you know what I mean? Mm, until yeah. that, that one's in college, we have sort of, you know, eight years left here. So um, I think we sort of think of it that way as sort of, um, you know, as far as how... That's the thing about a music career is there's there's nowhere to sort of like you know there's no ceiling on it and that that's the thing about it with growth and there's also learning and the thing about um you know writing and you know playing shows is is you kind of can't hit a ceiling you can hit a wall but you kind of can't hit a ceiling on it as far as um, and we're and I feel so blessed in that department. You know, like a lot of people have jobs that they can only get so far, they can only reach so far, right. they can only learn so much. And and I always like kid around, and I'm you know I tell my kids like I'm only 46 and I still don't even know how to play the piano yet. Like I have, all, <laughs> I have like 40 years to learn how to play the piano. <laughs> and, um, and that that's the thing about music is 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 you know the fact that we get we get to do something that we can never get like good enough at. We can mm-hmm. never get we can get as good as we want to maybe or we can but there's always growth and i think yeah. that's that's just something that some that some people aren't allowed in their career and i always feel so blessed to have it because um you know when the kids do grow up when you know the last one's out of high school and on to college like we could pack up and move to nashville mm. and i could write every day and maybe that's yeah. the space i'll be in then or maybe I want to tour all the time. Maybe you just want more time to spend on the boat. <laughs> I know. First I'll have to get a boat. <laughs> well, Tim McGraw just released a new album this month, uh, and the last song on it is one of yours, Humble and Kind. And it has this lyric, 
when the dreams you're dreaming come to you, when the work you put in is realized, let yourself feel the pride, but always stay humble and kind. Um, in many ways, your dreams have come true, uh, and you've managed to remain grounded and, frankly, humble and kind. Um, and it's really <laughs> a great example for aspiring writers out there of how you can achieve the dream and also remain true to yourself and your, and your values and, and who you are. Um, so it has really just been awesome for us to have this opportunity to talk with you today and to hear some of the, the stories of your career and the stories behind some of your songs and on behalf of ourselves and, and all our listeners, uh, thank you for, for sharing that time with us. And, and thank you for all the great music that, uh, you've made over the years. Yeah. Thank you, guys. It's been such a pleasure, and um, I I appreciate it. It is um it it is always fun to um to talk about songs anytime. So well, thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft. Just